Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we are prepared to study God's word this evening, make sure we are in fellowship. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a wonderful privilege that we have to gather together to study your word, that we have a copy of the scriptures in our own language that we can read, that we can study, that we can reflect upon, and that we can dig into in order to understand what you have revealed to us and to discover your answers to the basic issues of life. Father, as we study this evening, we pray that you would help us to think through what the scripture says especially to see how to apply these things in our own life in situations where we live in a excuse me we live in a nation uh, that is uh, that is uh, drifting quickly away from its biblical foundation from its biblical roots where more and more there are uh, people both uh, of the population as well as in government and numerous bureaucrats who are in positions of a power and influence who are hostile to biblical Christianity and the beliefs of the Scripture, the teaching of the Scripture. And as we grow older in the coming decades, we will see more and more opposition to implementation of biblical truth. And we need to know how to live, and we need to know how to respond to an authority that may indeed be hostile to what we believe is the right thing to do. And we pray that you would give us guidance this evening. In Christ's name, amen. We're continuing to study the issue of authority out of Romans chapter 13. Eddie, are the speakers all turned up right? There we go. Now I sound right. What? I was in recording mode. Okay. From the other day. That sounds a lot better. Okay, we're in Romans 13 where Paul says that all authorities are from God and that we are to obey all authorities. In looking at other scripture, we understand that that to disobey authority is to disobey God because all of the authorities come from God. Now, th- unfortunately, I think there are some people who take those statements in an absolute sort of way that is not intended. The Bible does not say to obey the authority when they're wrong. And wrong is defined against a standard, and that standard, of course, is the Word of God. 
So we've been looking the last time and this time at examples where believers disobeyed an authority over them because the law that was being, or the mandate or the command that was um, that was being set forth was contrary to the word of God. And so we've seen several principles, and we'll see it in our, in our last two examples that we're going to look at this evening, that in each of these cases, the command or the mandate or the order or the law was specifically in contradiction to a revealed mandate from God. It wasn't that, well, that's not the right principles. We'll see when we get to the end of this section in Romans 13, 6 and 7. There are some people who think that the tax system in the United States is extremely unfair. They may or may not be right. There are people who think that the property tax system is extremely unfair and is not consistent with a biblical pattern. That's a good example to use. Because I think that there's something to that argument that property tax is really a, 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 a tax that is not wise and is destructive of the accumulation of wealth. In the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, which we're not under but is a pattern for us of wise government, there's no property tax. There are tithes, which are basically the taxes that they paid, that were based on a percentage and that were applied equally to every person, whether you were wealthy or whether you were poor. You still paid 10% every year for one tithe, 10% for the other tithe, every third year another uh, 10% for that, that particular tithe. That was a, that was equated, it was equivalent for everyone. It was a flat rate tax. There was no property tax. That way there would be no threat of the loss of property to a family. And property was wealth and property could be accumulated and passed on within the uh, family, within the clan from one generation to another. So we'll take that as an example because there's a biblical pattern there that is violated today. So does that give me the right to say, I'm not going to pay my property taxes because that doesn't fit the biblical pattern? No, it doesn't. Now, if the government comes along and mandates me to do something that God has told me not to do or tells me not to do something God has told me to do, then I have the right to disobey that. It's That's the difference between disobeying a direct command and this idea that, well, it doesn't fit a biblical pattern or biblical principle. All the examples we have in Scripture are addressed to specific situations and issues. So we looked last time at Exodus 1, uh, verse 6, and then verses 15 to 22 in the case of the disobedient midwives. We looked at Exodus 2, 1 through 6, uh, along with Hebrews 11.23, the case of the disobedient parents. Now, both of those were involved with the Exodus generation. In the first case, you had the midwives that were told by Pharaoh to let him know whenever a uh, newborn male baby was born so that he could uh, kill the baby. And they always arrived late. It was too late to uh, 
it was too late for them to do anything. And he had asked them to, you know, just to do something to take the life of the baby as soon as it was born so that just say, well, it was born dead, make some excuse. The case of the disobedient parents, of course, this was Moses' parents, and uh, Moses was born and under threat of death from the Pharaoh, so they hid the child. Again, they're violating the law of Pharaoh. Uh, but God was in control and, and provided for protection for Moses. Then we went to Daniel. In Daniel, we looked at the case of the wise students in the first chapter, which is the story of the uh, Jewish young men who were probably around 14 or 15 years of age who were taken as captives by Babylon, back to Babylon to be retrained, and they were all given the same diet, but this was not a kosher diet. And so uh, Daniel and his three three friends, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, who had all been given uh, Babylonian names that reflected the Babylonian deities. And remember I pointed out that they didn't make an issue out of that. That, that's like trying to make an issue out of a principle as opposed to a command. They didn't fight on that hill. They waited and focused on an issue that where they were being required to eat food that God had told them not to eat. Daniel went privately to the uh, ad- administrator who was over the program, the chief eunuch, appealed to him, gave him a test in, in wisdom, gave him the opportunity to evaluate their diet in contrast to the diet of the other students, and they came out a winner. And so that gives us an example. Daniel is really written as a book of wisdom for how believers are to live in a pagan environment. And that's important for us and will be more, more and more so because the world around us is more and more hostile to biblical Christianity, so we need to learn how to live in a way, in the world around us, without constantly butting heads, but operating on on wisdom. But sometimes there are going to be direct head-on confrontations, as we saw in Daniel chapter two, where uh, or Daniel chapter three rather, where Nebuchadnezzar erected a statue of himself, that uh, our huge gold statue that they were to bow down and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship. The penalty was that they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. In their confrontation with, with, um, with Nebuchadnezzar, it, it was not a hostile confrontation. They were very polite, very respectful. They just respectfully declined to obey the order. And they said, God will save us, but if he doesn't, that's okay. He's still God. And so they trusted in God. God delivered them uniquely to make a point to Nebuchadnezzar. We ended there last time, and I'm going to look at the third example from Daniel this evening, which is in, which is in Daniel chapter uh, 6. Daniel chapter 6, and this is the episode related to uh, Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den. Now, as we look at this, there's uh, four basic points that um, we need to remember here, and that is that, first of all, as I've already said, Christians are to subject themselves to government authorities. So Daniel is to submit himself to the authority of, of the law of the Medes and the Persians. Second, this government authority, whether it's saved or unsaved, and in this case we have an unsaved authority, 
that he has got to submit himself to that unsaved authority. Now, that has implications for us and for many Christians who live outside of the United States. We have a tendency to just focus so so narrowly on on our own circumstances and our own culture. But if you're a Christian living in a Muslim country, then you've got a whole other issue to deal with. If you're a Christian living in uh, Russia, living in Ukraine, living in uh, other purely secularized countries with no r- strong history uh, of biblical tradition behind them, then that too is a different different circumstance and different situation. And so we have to recognize that even those authorities that are placed over us, if you're in Russia, that means Putin. If you're uh, if you're in Saudi Arabia or Iran, then that has to do with the either the House of Saud or the Ayatollahs who are running uh, Iran. They are the authority that's appointed by God. Wrestle with that a little bit. All authorities are appointed by God. It means believers and unbelievers. It means Nero. It means whomever you think was a wonderful Christian ruler. So third thing we see and we'll see in this is that when you resist government authority, you do it because it relates specifically to that command of God. And then finally, uh, we see that uh, the person who governs, who is, is going to have, a, the governing authority is going to be given a testimony, whether they accept it or not, that's another story. In this case, he's positive to it, but that's not always the case. Okay. Now, situation we find in Daniel chapter 6 is that the governing power has now shifted. It was the Chaldean Empire in the first four chapters. In the middle of chapter 5, it shifts to the Medes and the Persians. The Persians conquered uh, the Babylonian Empire, and that's the story of chapter 5. And then the ruler uh, over Babylon in Daniel chapter 6 is Darius. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. So this is his administration. He didn't have 50 states. He set up these satraps, these regional regional, uh, areas of administration, and each one had a ruler or an administrator over that area. And over those 120 satraps, there was, uh, there were three governors that oversaw the administration of those 120, uh, satraps. So each one of those basically, uh, would oversee, uh, uh, 40 of them. And Daniel was one of those three. So Daniel now is not the young Daniel that we read about in the first uh, three chapters, but now Daniel is probably close to 81 years of age. If he was uh, 14 or 15 when he first um, when he was uh, first taken back to Babylon, that was in 605. This is now around six. Uh, 640, I mean 540. So about 65 years have gone by, and uh, if you add 15 to that, then you've got um, about 60 years have gone by, 65 years have gone by, you add 15 to that. If he was about 15 years of age, you add 15 to that, then you have 80. 
So he's around 80, 81 years of age, depending on whether this is 540 or 539, and he is uh, not young anymore. But he's been called out of retirement. He sort of went into retirement uh, toward the end at uh, when they had the big feast with Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. They had to call for Daniel. Somebody remembered Daniel could interpret dreams. He was no longer part of the administration, and he had been retired for some time and spent that time probably in ministry in the Jewish community, reading, studying, continuing uh, with his spiritual life and his spiritual growth. And so after uh, his involvement at the at the fall, his wisdom word was... Uh, Word got to Darius about his background, and Darius wisely elevated him to a position of authority in the um, Persian Empire. Now, anybody who is a success at anything is going to come under um, uh, under a lot of scrutiny from their peers. And if you're working in any form of bureaucracy, whether it's in the military or whether it's in some other form of government bureaucracy, uh, maybe it's within a school district or whatever it may be. If you are a standout, there are probably going to be people who are going to pe- become jealous of you. And this is especially true in areas of bureaucracy in our government, uh, outside of the military and probably outside of some other uh, areas of, of uh, uh, related to education. But you take, for example, what's going on right now with this scandal in the uh, Veterans Administration. One of the problems that you have with a, the federal bureaucracy is that if any, that everybody can, if you just go along and get along, everybody has a secure job and nothing is being threatened. If you exercise initiative and if you do things differently and you, sh- and you uh, operate according to uh, a different standard, then you're going to be a threat to everybody else because they're just operating at minimal expectations. But if you rise above those minimal expectations, then you're going to make yourself a target, and they will uh, try to do something out of jealousy and envy to take you out because you're a threat to them. That's the kind of thing that happened with Daniel. In Daniel three, we read. I mean, Daniel six verse three, we read. Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and set satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king, king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now, this just irritated and angered all of those uh, petty little minds that were part of the bureaucracy. And so they were trying to come up with a plan to take Daniel out. And in verse 5, we see the thinking of these men and their conspiratorial attitude they said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So he's got a strong public testimony. They knew who he was, and they knew what his habits were. So they decided that, the, that his weak spot was going to be something related to his worship of God, and they would have to come up with a law that would make what Daniel was doing illegal, knowing that Daniel wouldn't change and that Daniel wouldn't, wouldn't compromise. So they came up with the idea of having the king sign a law and a decree that there would be no one in the kingdom could present a request or a petition before any god or any man for a period of 30 days except to the king. And the penalty would be that they would be cast 
into a den of lions. Now, I'm sure that this is a summary version of what was going on. It took them time to probably come up with this kind of a trap. And also, it, it, they would have to put it the right way in order to catch and pick the right time in order to catch Darius off guard. Because anyone who is a good leader would immediately realize this would be a problem. If you've got such a large empire and such a huge administration that every petition, every request has to come to you and you alone, that's going to create an extremely narrow bottleneck, an extremely tight bottleneck, and it's going to basically bring everything to a halt. So you'd have to pick a time when it would be expected that not a whole lot would be going on. Uh, sort of like in the old days before they invented air conditioning, um, once it started getting hot and humid in Washington, D.C., Congress went home, and a lot there wasn't a lot going on. In fact, the argument has been made by someone that the greatest threat to American liberty was the invention of the air conditioner. Because once it, once Congress was air conditioned, they could stay longer and come up with more more laws and take away more freedoms. But um, anyway, so they came up with a time and a and a way in which they could present this to Darius, so that he would go along with this. It was only for thirty days. So in verse uh, eight, we read read their petition to him. They said, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Once the ruler signed it into law, there was no, even the ruler couldn't change it. It was irreversible. There was no appeal. There was no, uh, uh, no way to turn it back. There was no way for him to uh, reverse himself it was uh, permanent and binding to everyone, including the king. Now, this had probably gone on for some time, because if you look at verse 10, we see that Daniel seems to know what has been going on. The verse begins by saying, Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, so he was aware of, of the, this, uh, this law, he was aware of the conspiracy, and it seem, almost seems as if he was biding his time. He knew this was going to happen. He knew it was a foregone conclusion. And once he knew that, he waited until it was signed. And then he went home. He went home, and we're told he went to his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Now, that last phrase is important to note. He's not going in there to rub Darius's nose in the law. He's not making up a situation to create a violation of the law. He's not operating out of anger and saying, I'm totally against this law. I'm going to go out and, and break the law in order to make a court case about it so we can get this handled. Different culture, different situation. We could handle it a different way in the U.S. We would have somebody break the law, take it to court, take it through the system, get it tested. That's how we could do things. That's not how they would they could do things because even the king couldn't change the law. So he recognized he's got to do, he's going to do just exactly what he has always done. Since he was a young man, and this is an important principle to train people with, if you're a parent or a grandparent, this is a great lesson. 
you need to train your children in prayer from the earliest age. Make this a habit along with many other uh, things that they need to make a part of their life, giving them responsibilities for cleaning up their room, giving them various other household chores to uh, take care of as they grow up. Responsibility develops maturity. But as soon as they begin to read, have them read Bible stories. You read them to them and then let them read them. Build that discipline. Pick a time every single day. So you build that pattern and habit into their life from the earliest possible age. Same thing with prayer. Every single day, making a time of prayer where there's an appointment with God that they're going to keep every single day for prayer. That's what we see with Daniel. Now, I'm not going to say it should be three times a day, but it should be at least one time a day when you have a set appointment with God when you are going to take time uh, time to pray. Now, Daniel, we know from other passages in Daniel, is familiar with other uh, other Old Testament writings, even contemporary writings such as Jeremiah. At the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, we know that Daniel has been reading in the prophet Jeremiah. Well, in Jeremiah 29, 11, there is a promise from God that says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That is a great promise. It is a promise it made to Israel in light of the plan God has for them, but it reflects a universal principle. It has an implication for us that God is a God who orders history and orders our lives, and we know that he has a plan for us as well. So there's an implication there for us, and for Daniel there was a clear application because as a Jew, God had a specific plan for him and for his country. In the next verse, in Jeremiah 29, 12, God says, then it's an implication from the fact that God has a plan for for the Jewish people. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. So God is calling upon his people to pray and be dependent upon him. So Daniel understood how important this was as part of his relationship to God. And from the time that he was young, He had made it a point to pray to God. So he's not just choosing this as an opportunity to uh, disobey this law. Daniel would be aware of a statement in 1 Kings 8, 29 to 30, which states that thine eyes may be open towards this house. This is God speaking, that your eyes might be open toward this house night and day. This house in that context refers to uh, the temple and that God uh, is indicating that the people would pray towards the temple in Jerusalem, which was the place of the dwelling of God in the Old Testament. And he says that thine eyes may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place of which uh, uh, you have said, my name shall be there to listen to the prayer which your servants shall pray towards this place. So God established his presence in the temple, and they would pray in that direction. Another important prayer uh, statement from David, this time in Psalm fifty-five, seventeen, where David said, Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. 
See, I bet most of you don't ever complain to God in your prayers. You read through the Psalms, David's constantly complaining to God in his prayers. And then, and, and as he goes through the problem in complaint, he's thinking about God's provision and his promises. And by the time you get to the end of that Psalm, they're called lament Psalms. By the time you get to the end of the Psalm, David's mental attitude has been straightened out and he's focused on the, the eternal provision of God. But how often is he praying? Evening, morning, and noon. So this is a pattern that we see in Scripture. And so this was the pattern that Daniel uh, had adopted. He understood that, and he's praying three times a day, and he has for most of his uh, most of his life. But he also is aware that this is probably a trap. He's not going to hide. He could easily have gone home and said, well, I know that if I do that, what I normally do, I mean, it's really not going to make any difference to God. I'm still going to pray three times a day. I'll just close the curtains and pull the blinds, and that way nobody's going to know what I'm doing in here. But Daniel's not going to change a single thing of his life. He's going to continue to do what he's always done. And even though he knows that these uh, enemies of his are sitting outside the window paying attention to exactly what has gone on. And so as soon as they spot him praying... They immediately ran back to the king, and they reminded him of what he had done. He said, you made this law, and he said, yes, this is true. It's according to the Medes and the Persians, and it can't alter. So they answered. They just set him up the way they're handling the king. Remember that law? Yes, I remember it. He recited it, emphasized that it couldn't be changed, and then they sprung the trap. In verse 13, we read that Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, Notice how long they've been saying this. It's been 65 years or 66 years, and they're still saying he's one of the captives from Judah. Shows how hostile they are to the Jews, an incipient anti-Semitism. He says, one of the captives from Judah does not show the due regard for you, O king, or for that decree that you signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was just mortified. He realized probably at that point how he had been set up and how Daniel had been set up, and he was extremely distressed because he cared a lot for Daniel. He relied upon him. He realized he had more integrity than probably all of the other administrators in the kingdom combined, and so he uh, tried to figure out some way to deliver Daniel. But they kept reminding him that he couldn't violate the law, and so he ordered Daniel's arrest and had Daniel uh, brought to him and in preparation for executing the penalty of having him sent to the, to the uh, lion's den. And the king made it clear to Daniel. The king understood his testimony. Whether Darius was a believer or not, we, we'll never know. But he says, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. So he had some sense that God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel was a true God. So they go through the whole episode where they put uh, Daniel inside of the lion's, uh, lion's den. Now, what has happened so far is we see that the, the, the same pattern fits here that we've seen already. There's a, an unjust law from the king that is mandated of a believer. The believer doesn't make a public issue out of it. And I would say that today in our environment it's different because we live we don't live under the kind of totalitarian state that they lived under. 
We live in a world where we have a right to uh, publicly assemble, to challenge the laws uh, in the courtroom, to make a challenge before the administrators uh, of the law, much like what happened uh, last week with regard to this city ordinance in Houston. This is in contrast to some of the riots or some of the uh, things that have gotten out of control that you've seen and with other issues in, quote, civil disobedience. There was an assembly of believers down at, at City Hall last week. There was another gathering at um, uh, Grace Community Church on Sunday night of over 2,500 uh, people from different churches and pastors for the purpose of being educated uh, on this uh, on this city ordinance. The press was out there, everything else. This is just making a public, showing public uh, unity with re- that they were standing against the foolishness of this city ordinance. It's making an impact upon uh, upon the people on city council. They're, they've never seen this many people get together this consistently or get this much communication from the citizens of Houston over anything that they've done, which is, which is sad. But, but they're really hearing from the citizens of Houston about this particular ordinance. We can speak up because that's our form of government. If you tried to speak up in an Egyptian environment or in a Persian environment, you were just going to be summarily executed. You didn't have that option or that opportunity. So it all depends upon the governing situation that you might have. But always follow the principles of following the law and showing respect for those who are in authority, which is exactly what uh, Daniel has done. Daniel refused to obey the law, but he doesn't make an exceptional show about it. He goes home and continues to do that which was right, trusting in the Lord to handle the situation, which is exactly what happens. One of many people's favorite uh, stories from the Old Testament, that Daniel was put into the lion's den. Uh, The king spends his night... He can't eat, he can't sleep, his regular entertainment, whether he would bring in a, a group of musicians or bring in someone from some, one of the wives from his harem or whoever it was, he sends everybody away, stays by himself, he can't sleep, tries to lie down, tosses and turns, and uh, cannot wait until dawn so he can come down to see if Daniel is still there. And in verse 20, we read, he came to the den and he cried out with a lamenting voice. He, he, he knows Daniel's going to be dead, but, but there's something that gives him a little bit of hope. His voice is just shaky and he cries out to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you, uh, from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. God, my God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouth so that they've not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. That's the only court of appeal that ultimately matters for eternity. And so the king exalted and uh, gave the command to bring forth Daniel. And in his place, he sent uh, those who had uh, arrested him, not only those who had arrested, uh, had him arrested, but he had their whole families, including their children and their wives, thrown into the lion's den, and they were devoured, uh, devoured by the lions. So, and then he issued a decree that went out to all the people, praising God as down in verse 36, 
the living God who is steadfast forever, his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth and he has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And it very well could be because of that statement that at this point Darius became a believer. It's not clear, but I would kind of lean to think that he did. So what we've seen is the same pattern. Now let's turn to uh, Acts. Turn in our Bibles to Acts, and we'll look at a situation we studied fairly recently in Acts chapter 5, which is the case now of prohibited preaching. Acts chapter 5. This is where a very clear statement is made by Peter in relation to the, the obedience to authority. Now, this is the same Peter. We're going to look at 1 Peter in just a minute. Remember, this is the same Peter who's going to write what we read in 1 Peter. So Peter and John have been arrested by the Sanhedrin, and they're being, uh, uh, this is in Acts chapter, I said 5, it should be 4, Acts chapter 4, and in Acts chapter 4, they come before uh, the Sanhedrin, and they're, they're tried before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin uh, brings them in on verse 18, Acts chapter 4, verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus, it's interesting that it adds that phrase at the end, to teach in the name of Jesus, because in the Great Commission, part of what Jesus has specifically commanded the disciples to do is to teach, that they are to teach all men. Um, And so now they're commanded not to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered in verse 19 and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Let me skip here to here. And then... Uh, and then this was going to be stated again uh, later on when we get down to verse 28 and 29. Um, maybe it should be eight, five, 528 and 529. They're challenged again. Skip over to 528, next chapter. 528, they're arrested again. And this time, the Sanhedrin says to them, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter responded by saying, we ought to obey God rather than men. So in these two episodes uh, that we have here in the New Testament that are connected in in 4.18 and 19, uh, Peter says that they have to uh, do what God says to do. And then he states it very succinctly in 529, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then he gave them the gospel. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So he disobeys them right in front of them right there in in the courtroom. So we see, again, a a command from people in authority that tells uh, Peter and John to do exactly the opposite of what Jesus told them to do. It's not a matter of principle. It's a matter of specific revelation, a specific mandate from God. And so they 
they resist that. That is the pattern for resisting. Now, one other thing I want to address before we wrap this up, and this has to do with a, uh, a, something that's called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And the doctrine of the lesser magistrate is something that is derived uh, from Scripture. And I think we see, sort of see some examples of it um, in what we have seen already. It's an uh, 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 expansion of it a little bit. We have to understand the historical background, and it goes back to a document that was written by a group of Lutheran pastors back following the Protestant Reformation. And so we have to understand a little bit about that uh, that particular background. The uh, the uh, Magde- this was called the Magdeburg uh, Confession, and this was written in about uh, 1548. Now, the Protestant Reformation began in 1517 when Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, he was Roman Catholic, he had no idea that what he was doing was going to split the church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, in two. Uh, up to that point, there was only one church. There had been various sects that had popped up here and there, but basically there was this only one church, and the Roman Catholic Church had deteriorated into a tremendous amount of apostasy and perversion at this point. And Martin Luther wants to reform it. There had been several periods of reformation from within the Roman Catholic Church over the years, and that's pretty much the pattern he was following. He had no idea what he was beginning. He was from a town in what is now uh, Eastern Germany, uh, Wittenberg, Germany, and on October the 31st, which is the eve before All Saints' Day, which was a holiday, uh, he nailed 99 debating points called theses, uh, 99 debating points on the door of the church at Wittenberg. The, the door of the church would be a place where you would, it was like the community bullet, bulletin board. If you, if you had a uh, horse for sale or an ox for sale or you wanted to buy something, that's where you would put a notice was on the door of the church. So he taxed this up that this is something that needs to be debated because these are serious flaws within uh, the Roman Catholic Church. This is what led to the split in the Roman Catholic Church from uh, among those that were called Protestants because they were protesting the doctrine and theology and the practice of the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the fundamental issues that, that Luther wanted to, to debate was the issue of how a man became righteous before God. Was it through the work of the sacrifice uh, of the sacraments or was it through faith alone in Christ alone? That's what began the break. Now, this caused a huge uh, wave of separation to occur among the different states in what is now modern Germany. There was no unified Germany at that time. And it caused a tremendous fissure to occur in Germany. And Germany was under the authority of the Holy Roman Empire, which was not holy and it wasn't Roman and it really wasn't an empire but that's what it was called. The Holy Roman Emperor at this time was Charles V, and in 1521 he issued a decree on May the 25th called the Edict of Worms, and in that he stated, For this reason we forbid anyone from this time forward to dare either by words or by deeds 
to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic, as he deserves, to be brought personally before us, or to be securely guarded until those who have captured him inform us, whereupon we will order the appropriate manner of proceeding against the said Luther. Those who help it in his capture will be rewarded generously for their good work. Well, Luther was uh, basically kidnapped and protected by Prince Frederick III of Saxony, who was, had come to Protestant convictions. So what we see here is the beginning of this, this doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Uh, Prince Frederick is supposedly under the authority of Charles V. Charles V has issued an edict or a law to arrest Luther for preaching the gospel. But Frederick comes along and says, if that happens, Luther's going to be killed. That's wrong. I'm going to hide him. And that's what happened is that Luther was put into hiding, and that's what protected him. The law of the lesser magistrate is the idea when a higher authority enacts an unjust law, and this would fit the biblical pattern of this unjust law, telling the citizens to do something that was unjust and would be a violation of God's word, to arrest somebody for their proclamation of the gospel. Then when a higher authority enacts an unjust law, then a lower authority has the right and the responsibility to interpose himself between the higher authority and the citizen to protect the citizen from the unjust law and the penalties of it. So Frederick III's act saved Luther's life. Now, Charles was never able to enforce the Edict of Worms. The purpose of the Edict of Worms, aside from this paragraph, was to completely outlaw Protestant belief. He was unable to do that. He was involved in wars with France and some other things at the time. So by 1530, some eight years later, he convened a a diet. That's a meeting of all of the heads of the states in in the area, in the empire. And they would meet in Augsburg to handle, it was sort of like Congress. They would handle uh, some of the business of, of the empire. And at this time, by 1530, there's a major threat facing Europe, much like today. The Muslims were at the gates of Vienna. And so what Charles was more concerned about was unifying all the Christians in Europe so they wouldn't be fighting with each other so that they could face a common enemy. So he was willing to sort of call call for a little bit of of a truce in the war against the Protestants. So things calmed down. Luther at this time wrote a, uh, a, a treatise, that, a book that went out to the German people called A Warning uh, to My Dear German People. It was published in 1531. It was broken into three parts, which are, were, are, and we don't need to get into this detail, but that basically was the same outline of the, as the later Magdeburg Confession. And then also in 1531, there was a group of princes, Prince Philip of Hesse, and Prince John Frederick I of Saxony, who were the two most powerful Protestant rulers at the time, who organized themselves in a religious alliance called the Schmalkaldic League. And the members of the Schmalkaldic League, among some of the other lesser princes, uh, pledged themselves to defend each other in case Charles V attacked their territories. So they're, they're making a stand for 
uh, religious liberty and belief in the gospel because Charles wants to stamp out the gospel of justification by faith alone. So this fits the same pattern that we've seen in Scripture where you have a, a king who is seeking to um, prevent believers from doing what God has told them to do. Now, they're not engaged in offensive action against the king, but, they're go- but if he's going to attack them, they're going to uh, band together uh, to protect each other. Well, this went on for another 15 years or so before um, Luther died. And Luther dies in 1546, and it's not long before Charles seizes the opportunity, thinking that with Luther gone, now he can uh, destroy the Protestant movement. So he entered into an, uh, an agreement with Pope Paul III to stop the Reformation. And uh, in 1548... Uh, Charles imposed a law called the Augsburg Interim, which demanded, listen to these demands. This is the law, the, the edict coming down from the emperor, that Luther, Lutherans were to restore the number of sacraments from two, same two that we believe in, baptism and the Lord's table, to back to seven, which is what the Roman Catholic Church has. The churches were to restore many of the Roman Catholic rituals and ceremonies and practices, including the belief in transubstantiation, that is that the elements of the Lord's table are actually transubstantiated into the blood and the body of Christ. So the decree third, the decree called for the rejection of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, And fourth, it required that everyone acknowledge the Pope as the head of the church. And fifth, that the churches receive the authority of the Roman bishops. So this is a direct confrontation against the Scripture and a contradiction to the Scriptures. So then, with this this now as law, the Pope came along and issued an edict authorizing Charles V to raise an army in order to attack those who would not conform to the edict and to destroy them and to force them into submission. The only city in Germany to resist the interim of Augsburg was the city of Magdeburg. Every other city in Germany just caved in. They said, okay, the king's in authority. That means we do whatever the king says to do, except for Magdeburg. The magistrates and the pastors in Magdeburg said, wait a minute, this is an unjust law. We need to stand and protect our people. So they uh, stood on the basis of Scripture. They refused to obey the edict from Charles, and they fortified the city. And in 1550, Charles brought his army to attack them. The people burned everything outside the walls of the city, closed the gates, and were under siege for a year. During that time, the pastors of Magdeburg wrote a defense of their position, which is called the Magdeburg Confession. And in that, they wrote a defense of their actions. They also wrote and published 228 tracts and pamphlets. See, they didn't get distracted by Facebook and email and television and all that other stuff. So they published 228 tracts and pamphlets that were printed and distributed throughout Germany. These uh, taught the gospel as well as gave a rationale in defense of what they were doing. At the end of the year, 
Charles had lost 4,000 soldiers killed, and 468 Magdeburgers had died, so almost 10 to 1. The siege ended on November the 4th, 1551, with favorable terms granted to the Magdeburgers by the emperor. He just gave up. As a result of their resistance, the other territories in Germany got a backbone, and they gathered together, and they began to resist Charles. They refused to uh, obey the, the edict, and uh, eventually they were able to push Charles' army out of, out of Germany. So that seems to fit the pattern for, um, for disobeying authority. There's that book, the Magdeburg Confession, was basically unknown until a couple of years ago, at which time it was translated into English, and then another book that was published about two or three years ago dealing with a justification for or expl- explanation of the, of the um, uh, doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Problem I have with this, I see the problem in the Reformation. They didn't handle Scripture always the way we would handle Scripture. And, and there's, it's a, it's a mixed bag. But they, they have a fairly good point, and I think what they did fit the pattern of scripture. Now in this, in the, in this book though, on the doctrine of lesser magistrate, there's only one chapter that deals with the scriptural justification for it. All of the other examples that are given are examples that happened, uh, historically, or, or in, in pagan cultures. And it may be a recognition of an establishment principle, and I, I'll, I'll accept that. But the examples that we have um, in the book come out of uh, the writings of John Knox. John Knox was the leader of the Reformation in Scotland, and he lived at approximately the same time as what was taking place in Magdeburg, and so he had a copy of the Magdeburg Confession, and he, he has a biblical justification. The only place that I found that this really works, he, he quotes from uh, Jeremiah 26, 10 to 16, and he also refers to Jeremiah 36, 9 uh, to 31. And in both cases, you have Jeremiah under attack from the king Jehoiakim, who is an apostate king of the southern kingdom. And Jeremiah is speaking God's uh, word to uh, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, in both of these situations, is seeking to take the life of Jeremiah. And the princes uh, of Judah protect him. And that fits the pattern. So that's the only biblical example. But there's no sort of biblical uh, injunction or biblical mandate or anything more than that. But you see something similar to that, that if, that if I am in a position of authority to protect somebody else and a higher authority comes along mandating something uh, wrong for them to do, then as a leader and as a person responsible, I need to stand in the gap and and protect them. And again, though, the examples that we see, the example at Magdeburg, the example that we see in Jeremiah, are examples where you have a king who is trying to implement a, a command or a law or an ordinance that directly assaults the command of Scripture so that... Uh, that that gives you the right of justification to step in and to disobey that law for that purpose. Now, going back to Romans 13, we've looked at these other passages, and and 
dealing with the whole issue of subordination from Romans 13.1. Every soul is to submit to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, Paul is writing when Nero is emperor. It's the first part of Nero's reign when he's not as crazy, not as bad as he was towards the end. But guess what? First, Peter writes his first epistle at, during the second half of Nero's reign. And Peter says basically the same thing. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, this is the same Peter that disobeys the Sanhedrin back in Acts 5 and says, we need to obey God rather than man. We have to put those two together. What Peter is saying here in 1 Peter 2 is not a contradiction. He's saying we are to obey the government. Obey Whenever you're under authority, you obey that authority unless that authority is in violation of the highest authority, which is God. He uses the same verb here that, that Paul uses in Romans 13.1. It's the same verb, verb that's used on every other submission passage, whether it's talking about um, uh, children to parents or wives to husbands or slaves to masters. In fact, Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 2.14, or to, or to governors who are sent by him by, uh, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. By doing good, even if we suffer for doing good, that's going to be part of what Peter says because he recognizes that, that many times by doing good, we will suffer. But he says it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing bad. If you suffer when you've done wrong, you expect to suffer because you've done wrong. But when you suffer for doing what's right, that honors God. It's part of our testimony. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the guy who's just, you know, a mean, harsh, irascible so-and-so that you don't want to do anything for. Now, he may be harsh, but he's not telling you to do anything that violates Scripture. He may be hard to get along with. He may be mean and ugly and nasty and vile and loathsome, but he's not telling you to do something that violates the Word of God. So unless he's telling you to do something that violates the command of God, then you're to honor that authority with all fear. This applies to every area of authority, whether we're talking about government or whether we're talking about the family. Whatever the environment for authority is, it's not about the personality of the person in authority. They can be stupid, they can be foolish, they can be making mistakes, but guess what? They're the one that's in authority. That's the one that God has established. First Peter 3.1, Peter goes on to say, Wives, likewise, that means just like the, the slaves, in the same manner. Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, he's an unbeliever, he's, he's crude, he's rude, he's socially unacceptable, he makes stupid decisions, but they're not violating the scripture. Even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of your wives. But there are exceptions to this. If the guy's abusive, 
If the guy's physically threatening, it's time to get out. If he's threatening the children, it's time to get out. Uh, that may not allow for remarriage. Not there, I think there's a, uh, we'll get into divorce and remarriage later in Matthew. I think there are legitimate grounds for separation in our culture that basically means divorce in order to protect assets. But that doesn't mean that the right to divorce or separate under some conditions does not always allow the right to remarriage. In most cases, in, in most case, unless it's immorality or desertion, it doesn't allow for the uh, for the right to remarriage, uh, right to remarry. But it does for survival. God does not expect anyone to put themselves in harm's way unless it's for the sake of the gospel. So there are times when it's necessary for self-defense, which is a biblical principle, for self-defense to separate. Bring the children and your and a wife out. Some cases, maybe the husband's uh, the wife's the one who's abusive, and then the husband needs to get out for self defense. Now, just to wrap up this first part of Romans in the last minute or so, Paul Paul concludes by saying, "For because of this, you also pay taxes, because they are God's authority, and they have the right to mandate taxes." Uh, the right to pay taxes. The word for taxes in verse 6 and verse 7 is the word on the left at the bottom for us. And it means a tribute from a vassal nation to a overlord nation, from a nation that's been conquered and brought into the empire. That's what that word means. But because of this, you also pay taxes. The Jews did not like to hear that, that they had to pay tribute to Rome. But Paul is saying, I mean, Peter is saying that's legitimate. In verse 7, he says, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to do whom taxes, or we could translate tribute to whom tribute is due, customs to whom customs is due. That's the word telos, which means a, a tribute or a tax uh, in the sense that we think of a tax, a, a civil tax in order to take care of the administration of the country. Taxes to whom taxes are due, uh, customs to whom customs is due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. If they are in a position of authority, even if you don't like it, even if you disagree with them, even if they're from the party you don't like, even if they have ideas that you think threaten democracy, we're to respect the office, even if the person in the office is not that respectable. We're to show them respect because they hold the office. And all of this always goes back to the original sin, the original sin of, uh, of Lucifer and eternity passed when he disobeyed the authority of God. That's why the scriptures make such an issue out of respect for authority all the way through the scriptures in every area because that's the original sin. Is someone who is in a lesser position thinks that he can judge the person who God has placed over them. So next time we'll come back. Paul shifts his focus in, when we get into Romans 13.8, and we'll continue with that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded that, that your will does address these issues. And your, your word makes it very clear that there are times when we're going to be faced with someone in authority, whether it's government, whether it's military, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's at home, someone that as uh, expecting us, demanding of us to do something that we really don't want to do and that we have to understand what the appropriate guidelines are and that we are to respond in grace and in kindness 
And it's not, it's how we respond as much as our response of submission. And that that is what glorifies you. We pray that you will help us to understand and apply these things in Christ's name. Amen.